Topping Talks. Hundred and five hours a week, can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production. And today's episode is proudly sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Talks is also on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with the special proficiency in IT security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. I have to say he's quite handsome and brilliant. If you're a business in Texas that can use at hand, you can reach us at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about their privacy? If you are, then perfect. ExpressVPN can assist. Even though 96% of stats are made up on the spot, ExpressVPN does give 100% guarantee via their 30-day Mac guarantee. Now, without further ado, I'm proud to say today I'm interviewing Tony Garcia, who is the Director of Security Evangelism at Versa Networks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. So I know it's kind of going back in time a couple of years, but what first got you interested in IT security or what first? Uh, a couple yeah. of years of being uh, <laughs> polite, far too polite. Uh, you know, I kind of I kind of found my way into IT, kind of fell my way into IT, I think like uh, many people do. Uh, I go back to the mid-90s, you know, my first uh, uh, college body of study was music. Uh, n- nobody was... Uh, maybe courageous or smart enough to tell me at the time that uh, you know, studying for a degree in singing doesn't exactly pay much. <laughs> uh, so uh, after uh, doing that, getting out of college, I, I find myself kind of working in retail and uh, had learned how to build PCs in, in college and having friends drop PCs by the back room of the store so I could fix their PCs for them. And uh, a, a colleague of mine at the time said, hey, you know, you could probably go do this for a living somewhere. <laughs> and it never dawned on me. Uh, so from there, I ended up, I think, in the late 90s teaching uh, certification courses. So oh, really? I used to teach Microsoft MCSE courses, A+, N+, Cisco, CCNA, CCMP courses and stuff. So collected a lot of paperwork doing that for a couple of years and then uh, uh, moved on to do some IT consulting and other things and kind of worked my way up and, and maybe about... Uh, 15 years ago or so, I started getting really serious about security and, and really migrating into that full time, which is where I you know, firmly find myself today. Now, I consider myself a bit of an IT person still, but I'm mostly a security person for the most part. That's the most fascinating part of IT, in my opinion, is the never-ending yeah. Rubik's Cube. It's always it, changing exactly, the fastest. Exactly. <laughs> I think being in security, being in cybersecurity is the double whammy. Oh, yeah. You got to stay on top of the IT and the security. So it's not yep. just <laughs> studying the code and the clouds and everything. You got to stay on top of the you know, regulatory environment and all the security risks and vulnerabilities and everything else going on out there, all the breaches and all that data on top of the IT technology. So I think it's probably an especially challenging thing. Oh, absolutely. Especially the threats just growing every single day yeah. and getting smarter and getting more money in their pockets. I mean, their resources are only expanding and getting larger, not smaller. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think when we look at the cybercrime world, I think uh, some of the recent data shows that at least last year, maybe ransomware is starting to trend down just a tick, mm-hmm. but it's been up, you know, double digits or, or 50, 60% every year for the last four or five years. So yeah. it's one of those things, you know, it's like I climbed a mountain and plateaued and came down a little bit. It's not, nothing to brag about. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think this is one of the things that's very difficult to, in cybersecurity in general is we have... Uh, this evolving threat landscape, as we call it, right? And, and, and that sounds like a buzzword, and it is to a certain degree, but it's also very true. 
I think we tend to look at things like uh, IT environments and cybersecurity as being these very static things that we can manage. And the reality is, is uh, the, the attacks are always evolving and they're always looking at a new attack pattern. A good example of this is I had an example, or I had a discussion debate with a, a friend of mine who's got a, a handful of CVs to his name. He's a, he's a red teamer for an undisclosed company. And uh, uh, you know, we were talking about credential theft and credential attacks. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, when you look at it two, three years ago, it was somebody does a phishing attack, they get your credentials, yep. they get into your email, they forward it, you know, what we call these business email compromise attacks, oh, yeah. these type of things, right? And it was like, wow, MFA lowers these attacks by 99.99%. If we just all went to MFA, problem solved, right? Yeah. What are we seeing two years later now? Some very interesting MFA attacks. Mm-hmm. So now we're seeing that as we've tightened up one control and made and made it a little tougher nut to crack, so to speak, for, for the average bad guy, now they've moved on to attacking the MFA pipeline. Yep. And it's something that two to three years ago, even somebody that should know better like me, that thought, you know, once I have MFA, we've kind of solved this problem, we can move on. Now we're seeing that there are very valid proof of concept MFA attacks. And I think we'll continue to see that rise as more businesses go to MFA. So now the reality is, is not only do we have MFA, we have to you know, authenticate and authorize the asset people are on and all sorts of things. So this is where I think we have technologies and really uh, philosophies like zero trust that are emerging to say, mm-hmm. we need a different approach, not just a different technology, but a different approach to attack this problem. Oh yeah. And it's, I was going to say, it's such the ever-evolving and moving target. We Absolutely. solved the problem today, but you be sure it's all guaranteed the problem's going to be moving tomorrow. Yeah, and it's the old <laughs> adage of, you know, what is it, the, uh, the, you know, the uh, gazelles in Africa, right? I don't, have to, I don't have to be the fastest. I just have to you know, be near the front of the pack or so, yeah. right? You don't want to be behind. <laughs> and I think that's with security. That, that, that really is the way uh, a lot of organizations view it is. You just absolutely have to make sure your controls and stuff don't, don't lag the behind the, the pack yeah. because you they start they, they tend to really go for the low hanging fruit to a certain oh, degree. Yeah. Now, if you're a big Fortune 50, Fortune 100 name, you may just be a target. Just and by the name alone, they'll throw an oh, yeah. unimaginable amount of money and time and resources at you. What we call you know the APT, the Advanced Persistent Threat, mm-hmm. right? If if somebody wants you that bad, you're gonna have a bad time. It, it's it's not easy to dodge that bullet. But the reality is for most organizations, the best strategy is being good enough to stay off the radar, right? Right. Having good enough security where it's an inconvenience. You don't have to have perfect security. Right. It's gotta be good enough that it's not worth the risk or the time or the effort. Exactly. Right? If they can go steal information from two companies in the time it takes to get yours. They want the easy, quick money. They'll move on, yeah. right? That's it. It's a business about making money. It's resource and time constraints and cost benefit analysis. It's a business. Oh, absolutely. So the reality is, is, is really kind of being good enough to stay off the radar is sometimes yeah. the best strategy. And just dissuade them, make it, make it just hard enough so that they don't even want to attempt it because exactly. it's not worth their time or energy. Exactly. And then going back a couple of years, what was it like working at a uh, Toyota financial? Cause that's, uh, Toyota is interesting. You know, great, great organization. I still have a lot of good uh, friends and colleagues there. I will say that it was an organization that really valued, um, security and not just the business of security or the compliance of security, but really just doing it right. You know, really ob- obsessed in the in the most positive way imaginable with brand and, and image and reputation, right? Uh, it, it is one of those things that it, it's very, uh, 
how do I say it, a, a paradigm shifting from a, a mindset when you walk through the front door of a company and they have customer uh, or repeat customer metrics, like right in the front, like how likely are people to rebuy yeah. a new Lexus, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like 97, 98%. Oh my gosh. Of customers are likely to buy a new Lexus and you yeah. go, wow. You know, it's like it's unheard of. I can honestly say having been in Microsoft, I don't know that we ever said how likely somebody to <laughs> use Windows for their next PC. You know, they probably yeah. will. Yeah. Who cares, right? <laughs> they might go get a Mac, whatever. They'll still use Office, right? Yeah. Uh, Toyota is very obsessed in, in a very positive way with that. And part of that trickles down, obviously, in a very positive way to cybersecurity. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're very aware of what brand reputation is and, and not having a breach and not having big incidents. And, uh, uh, but yeah, they're very good at that. They're, they're one of the more skilled, well-funded and certainly, uh, uh, well-resourced and, uh, uh, trained regimented, whatever you want to say, cybersecurity teams that I've ever worked with. It sounds like a lot of the books I've read about Toyota of just that culture of they were the first major automotive company to really flip the book on the assembly line where traditionally, it was kind of like a McDonald's, like just hammer out products as fast as possible. If there's a problem, we may or may not fix it at the end of the assembly line cycle. Yeah. With Toyota, the Toyota Way is a great book I recommend people reading. Yeah, It's talking about how every employee is empowered where if they're on the assembly line, even if you're maybe 25% of the way through assembling the vehicle, if a guy sees an issue, he can just raise their hand. And they're not punished yeah. or reprimanded. They yep. actually are incentivized because... They're solving the problem there. And actually, long-term, saves the company a lot of fiscal money as well, as well as the brand, of course. No, and that's correct. I think that 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 cultural awareness of risk does permeate the business at every level. Uh, you know, and, and I've told many people before, it's, it's, that was an organization where you could literally, again, you, you could start on day one. And if you went into a project meeting, you could say, I don't understand something. What about this? And you would be taken seriously. You would be given a platform. You'd be taken seriously. Uh, they were very, very good at that. And I saw a lot of instances over many years where they maintained that cultural awareness of that Toyota way. Yep. Those virtues, principles permeate throughout the business everywhere. Uh, they're also very good at, I think, a, a lot of processes like Kaizen mm -hmm. that you don't see really outside of, of that type of industry or, 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 or culturally. And what's just for the layman's terms for folks that are not automotive, what's the Kaizen way? Uh, Kaizen is basically continuous improvement, process yep. improvement, right? So it's like, it's not unheard of within that organization or similar organizations to Toyota where they will say every year, let's not just presume the way we're doing stuff is the right way. Mm -hmm. Let's always take a step back, fresh set of eyes, and let's look at ways to make this process better and more efficient. And it applies to the business, it applies to IT, it applies to you know, the budgeting process, it applied to cybersecurity, certainly. But it was a very good process of encouraging that. And I don't think that I've ever seen an organization that, that really had uh, that cultural mindset in, in, in the same way. And it's very impactful once you see that. You see most organizations, you know, you could have a tremendous amount of turnover in an organization. Oh, yeah. And the new people coming in will just presume that, the way it's been done for years is the right way. Yes. And it's like, no, 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 it should be okay to take a step back and say, let's draw this process on a board, mm. right? Why, why does, why does a process have to have 15 emails involved and 10 touch points and three phone calls to get one thing done, right? Can we automate this? Yes. Right. And it is one of those things that I think that's very instructive from a business standpoint to be able to apply that mindset to everything you do at a day-to-day -day business. It's just, 
that's how every company should be. I mean, you look at the most successful. Ideally, you know, most aren't. <laughs> most aren't. <laughs> unfortunately, not. Maybe well, you should airdrop the, the, <laughs> the Toyota away from uh, planes out there, right, for well, people to get. One of the most ironic things, too, is like Toyota is huge in North America because GM helped them. Yeah. And GM knew about the Toyota way when they were first starting the American presence, and they never really, I don't think they adopted it no. into their business model. No, and, I, and I will say, you know, this is a, it's got, it got a, a you know, a interesting personal intersect. You know, my father was a 35-year GM retiree. Oh, wow. So it's one of those well, things well, that I, I well, remember, you know, GM in the 90s or the early, in the early 2000s, you know, I did a, a business trip to Detroit to visit my father and I just got a brand new Infiniti G35 at the time. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, I park that in my old man's driveway, and I get no drive that down the block. Don't don't park that car in my driveway, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and GM legendarily, and they may not do this practice anymore, but if you had a foreign car, they wouldn't let you park in their corporate parking lot. Really? They make you park it overdraft down the street, right? Oh, my gosh. So they were very hostile toward that. Toyota, you drive up any car when you were for Toyota, and, and they're not threatened. Yeah. By the presence of any other brand. They're very proud of their brand, but not threatened, right? Not insecure about it. And I think that was very, uh, that's very formative as well to see that kind of confidence in what they do. Oh, absolutely. And just, it's all about that culture. Like one of my buddies I met at the track, he actually has a, a vintage uh, GTR. He works at Toyota. He says he drives it every day and people just love that thing. Oh, yeah. Right? Plus, it's just a rare, cool car. I mean, yeah, and that's one thing, you know, it's, it's a brand. They're, they're very proud. I know in uh, L.A., and I, th I think they have something similar here, obviously. They migrated it when they moved, but they used to have the auto museum in L.A. Oh, really? And when you did, a, you know, team wrap-up parties for any given project or something, we'd go down to the car museum, and they just had all the legacy of race cars and things there, and it was just a very cool, oh, cool. thing to see them maintain that culturally. That's awesome. What you, so what are, your uh, what are your thoughts on the new Supra? Uh, pretty awesome. Pretty yeah, impressive. Right? I, I will say you know, the, the issue I've always had with Toyota is just the, and I think a lot of people, it's like very good handling and feel, but they've always been a little behind on the power side of things, right? Yeah. But it seems like certainly with the, the what is it, the, the RSGR and some of this stuff they're doing is just very competitive. Uh, but it's one of those things that uh, it's almost the magic of the Toyota, right? It's like yeah. you can get in a four or 500 horsepower car and it feels good. You can get in a Toyota with a Supra, like half the power yeah. and still feels fantastic. Absolutely. So, so they managed to strike this balance that nobody else can do. Everybody else builds an okay car with a lot of power. Yes. Toyota <laughs> builds a car that has eh, middling power, but feels fantastic. Oh yeah. They seem to hit this, Good you medium. know, feel takeoff handling and everything kind of perfectly where they can make a very fun car that has something that looks like very average power on the outside. Right. But yeah. But yeah, kudos to them. And they actually, Supers are a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I, so they actually, they actually, I think they're one of the few modern automotive companies who still support amateur racing. Like the NASA Texas division, they actually rent a garage at the, I think it's like the Eagle Canyon Raceway. So like every time there's a track day, they have the Toyota Supers on the track, and you can, as a passenger, you can ride in any of them. Yeah. And I got to go in one a couple uh, track days ago. It was so much fun. I mean, so exhilarating. Yeah, and, I, and I'll say. I've known a lot of Toyota executives that drove a Supra. Yeah. You know, it's like they're not all in the top of the line Lexus. Some of them really like their fun, sporty cars, right? It, yeah. it is one of those things that I think people think, oh, they release this for, you know, teens or college tuner folks. It's like, no, there are a lot of people in that company that are big fans. Actual drivers. Uh, yeah, that, that are drivers and fans of those cars. So and They actually give a free um, 
I'm still saving up. I would love to get one someday. So like if you get the Toyota 86 or the Supra, you get a free one year membership for NASA Texas. Oh, oh, it's awesome. That would be fun. Yeah, so free, yeah, and the free race is membership. And a good ride, too. too. And it's a fun car to have on track. Oh, yeah. And they're one of the few companies actually listen to the consumers. Like, so many businesses are just going with automatic only because that's what the majority of the market wants, and it's more fuel efficient. However, yeah. I always contend as an yeah. enthusiast, it's more fun and it feels better. So uh, I think a recent article a couple months back when Toyota's bringing the Supra with a stick shift, which... Oh. is so impressive, especially because the powertrain for the inline six is engineered by a BMW. A lot of the internals are. So that means Toyota spent, I don't know how much, but they did all the internal engineering for the new stick shift. So I was reading a couple of articles on how they're doing that. I was like, that's really yeah. cool to do that for the fans. That's awesome. Yeah, it is kind of nice to see somebody bring that live. I mean, I, it's one of those things that I worry is a, is a you know, car guy and probably not as car crazy as some folks out there, but it is one of those things that I worry that, I, you know, to, to say not not really worry, but it is one of those things that ten years from now, you know, your your average young person is not going to know what an engine sounds like <laughs> or a stick shift feels like or any of that. Oh, it's it, it'll all be the Tesla experience. You, know, I get in a car and I have a big iPad in front yeah. of me and I just drive and it's quiet. Yeah, and, and it's like that's great, but I feel like yeah. we're we're losing something. So agree. We got to have the Toyotas or the GMs or whoever around to maintain that. Yeah, to some degree, or or we're going to lose a lot of that heritage. Uh, I'm, thankfully, I was very impressed with Mazda. I believe twelve to eighteen months ago, they made an announcement where they actually are doing every one of their Miatas will now be stick shift only, except for like one trim. Yeah. So they're going back to the roots, and I think the fans are really appreciating it. And you can still get, they'll still service a vehicle for like from the 90s. Like, if you need a part, Mazda directly will support you. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, that's incredible. Like, I can't think of any car model that has that type of support from the manufacturer yeah. like 20, 30 years later. I know that was one of the impressive things with Toyota. I knew some folks back, uh, what was it, 2000, the mid 2000s, that had like the first generation Prius. Oh, really? And I think internally, Toyota engineers estimated that the battery and everything on that would be good for maybe eight years or so. Mm-hmm. Like 15, 17, 20 years later, those things are still going strong. Oh, my gosh. I mean, they're just over-engineered to death. I mean, they know how to engineer a product without doubt. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's th- their stuff massively outlives uh, uh, what any rational spec would want, right? Oh, yeah. I still can't believe, like, when the Prius came, first came out, I think it was like 50, 60 grand. It was prohibitively expensive but i think it took about 20 30 years but pre-covid of course but yeah. like they got down to the price point where it's identical to similar models of you know yeah. size and comparable but it, that was pretty impressive for them to oh boy t- when you're took a long when time you're in but, LA yeah. with those gas gas prices in california that uh prius is a good way of life by the way oh geez how, how <laughs> you can save enough money driving a prius to, to buy your groceries probably yearly so oh my gosh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's worth it for sure out there so i think you were telling me it was like seven dollars a gallon when you were living out there uh yeah i mean that's, i think uh pre-2016 before i moved out here, here to DFW area, it was, I think I maybe saw five or five and a half. Jeez. I think right now I'm hearing it's it's six or seven in places. So gosh, the worst places. So yeah, it's, that's it's, incredibly it's, insane. And, and a lot of those people, you know, they're paying those gas prices, not driving, sitting in traffic. They're paying that, you know, they're, you're not paying high gas prices to drive your car. Yeah. You're, you're paying it to sit in traffic and run your car. Bumper to bumper. Exactly. So it's, 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 it's a very not good situation for, no. sure for most of those folks. There's a reason all the business, many of the businesses and people are all moving. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I think quite frankly, again, Toyota, kudos to them. I think one of the reasons why they expressed at least why they moved here is, you know, a lot of their folks couldn't afford yeah. 
California. They couldn't afford a house. They couldn't afford to live here or they couldn't afford to live there. And it was just, it was brutal. So I think, you know, culturally uh, they wanted a place where their people could, could build a better life. Right. And and have better work-life balance. And I think, you know, they've done that. And I think a lot of organizations are kind of following that. So, um, you know, it's nice to see organizations that support their people in that way. Yeah. So I think, and then uh, wasn't it about 12 months or 18 months ago, you know, Tesla's like, oh yeah, we're going to go to Austin too. So now they're in Austin, Toyota's in Plano. I think Rivian is still in Michigan. No, they're in California, Lucid. Mm. They're in Michigan, I think. But it'll be, uh, it's just one of those questions like, how long could you run a business profitably in California without being Yeah, and it's, a, and it's a, funny because, uh, again, kudos to Toyota. It's like they made this decision in, what, 2014 or 15, I think, when they yeah. announced. I forget that day, but... Um, that was very crazy. I can remember walking into the office that day and it was just, you know, you go to sleep the night before and you wake up the next day and you walk in the office and all of a sudden there's news cameras with a camera in your face. Do you have any comment? I'm like, no. I'm not saying anything <laughs> to anybody. I have yeah. no clue what's going on. <laughs> but but it's I, I think that was a bit of a bold move at the time that they made it. Nowadays, oh, yeah. it seems like, oh, another company's moving to Texas. Oh, yeah. But I, but I think at the time they made that, that was actually a very bold move. That was very stri- it was strategically forward thinking, right? Absolutely. And it was somewhat unpopular, I think, at the time. Oh, yeah. Um, nowadays, you know, you're, you're not leading with that kind of move. It's kind of like you're following the traffic out of California yeah. to Texas, right? But, but yeah, it is one of those things. I still have a lot of, you know, Versa, my, my company's in, in California. Yep. Great business environment for some, but, uh, you know, it depends on the business. depends yep. on your customers are on what you do. It's great if you're in Silicon Valley and you got a very innovative, cool product, right? But but yeah, it's it's running a car company or something else out of there. Is, it's got some serious challenges. Oh, yes, absolutely. Especially because car companies, you're always wor- worried about profit margins because exactly. it's, like it's all you, about the You can't afford yet. to manufacture something there and ship it no. to the country, right? You know? No. So, there's, yeah. a reason, there's a reason every truck, whether it's a, I believe it is, you know, Chevy truck, like same as Silverado, um, as well as the Toyota Tundra, they're all manufactured in Texas because I believe it's one out of every four trucks in America yep. is sold in Texas. Like, exactly. So it makes sense. Bring down the cost. Just make it here. That's where your biggest right. single market share is for the truck industry. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, certainly, I think from Toyota's standpoint, you had a lot of business in uh, a lot of the parts of the business in California, but they had engineering in Kentucky oh, yeah. and Assembly all sorts too. of stuff all over. Exactly. So it was like this This, this was a, an ability for them to kind of really consolidate a lot of stuff into, into one place and kind of bring the family, so to speak, North America together. And I think it's probably led to a lot better uh, um, kind of community and, and just collaboration, really. Because, oh, yeah. you know, you had parts of the business there that were split all over the place. And now Central you can just walk across the street to different buildings and meet. So it, yeah. it's probably better for everybody involved there. Absolutely. And then what was your, I guess, what was your favorite part about working there? Was it, I, it sounds like the culture is pretty good. Yeah, the culture was great. Um, I mean, I, honestly, uh, uh, very respectful of their people. They treat their people great. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought that was great. Uh, the support from leadership, I think, on cybersecurity stuff, again, was very encouraging. Um, uh, you know, they, they had a, a good respect and understanding, I think, of risk management, the business of cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably one of the best CISOs I've ever worked for, hands down. Very, very good folks over there. Um, it didn't hurt to have an on-campus Starbucks. Oh, uh, really? That, that's always a good thing. Yeah, I think I look back now and I'm like, yeah, when did my coffee addiction really go into overdrive? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> It's like when I was at Toyota, we had an on-campus kind of coffee shop, and we'd be like, oh, man, I could really use a coffee. Yeah, let's go talk. Yeah. Go 
go down to the coffee shop. And I know here, certainly at their campus in Plano, I think they have two or three. I wouldn't be surprised. It's big. So (laughs) it's like, you know, you you don't have to go very far to get, to get a coffee over there, but yeah, it's kind of nice working for an organization like that, where you, where you have that, uh, um, but, but yeah, a great organization and you get a lot of, uh, perks, I think with that scale, obviously. Right. So very competent people. So. And then what's your favorite part or rather what inspired you to join Mr. Cooper? And I, I guess what, and then what is Mr. Cooper for those who might, yeah, might, yeah, exactly. might not know? <laughs> and Mr. Cooper is something I think a lot of organizations have, or a lot of folks probably haven't heard of, but they're a, a local mortgage. Uh, um, you know, they do a lot of originations in a servicing business, right? Servicing industry. So a lot of, uh, I think last I checked, they were probably the nation's third largest servicer, right? So a lot of people go get a mortgage at a company and they think they have it with one company and, and, and you know, they might. And then Mr. Cooper on the back end has a lot of the tools and the technology to, to manage and service that loan. So that was a lot of their business, but a uh, huge company from a real estate standpoint, um, the market cap, et cetera. I think about 10,000 employees when I was there, oh, I was wow. the VP of uh, security. I owned the security architecture policy standards, third party risk. And I did a lot of the maybe kind of VC. So stuff is what we would call it nowadays for uh they have a, kind of a Zillow type competitor called Zome, X-O-M-E, mm-hmm. where they do real estate uh, valuations. Last I checked, they actually had the world's largest MPLS database. Really? And so, yeah, they were actually huge from a real estate analytics wow. uh, standpoint. So big shop over there, but uh, learned a lot over there. And it was my first gig coming to Texas. So I moved to California to here and it was, you know, looking for a good fit. And it was a, the, the first... CISO really at the time that I sat across from and had a, had a good discussion with and decided to come on board. So uh, I spent about three years over there and it was very good. Um, managed to make it through most of the pandemic uh, over there with them through uh, uh, mid 21. Uh, and that, uh, that was, I think a lot of people, you know, the great uh, resignation, so to speak, mm-hmm. right. Caught a lot of us where you end up working 60, 70 hours, uh, a week, uh, just nonstop on stuff with, uh, I think my last, uh, six months there, I had about, I think as an executive, I had about five weeks of paid vacation time a year. Mm-hmm. I think I took two days <laughs> in, in eight months before I left. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it was just like, you just could not get a day off over there. It, it was just, and, and I don't blame them for that. It, there was a lot of pandemic pressures and everything going on. I think at one point, we had about nine thousand employees that we 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 moved to a remote work. Oh wow! Uh, in, in about ninety days, really thousand, yeah. So we were out of a ten or eleven thousand person company, we remoted about nine thousand of them in very short notice. What was that process like? It painful, oh, very oh painful. Gosh. That's what it was like. <laughs> so we had a lot of security requirements, a lot of, uh, but we got a lot of security done from that. So that's one of the things you know you learn from this business is that. If you're putting in a new operating system, you know, if you're updating your windows or you're putting out new laptops, anytime you're making big technology changes, that's when you tend to go really heavy on security. Yep. It's the kind of rip the bandaid off approach, right? It's like if you deploy laptops out there or desktops out there and you let people get comfortable, then you come back and try to tweak their security. They get really upset very quickly <laughs> when there's yep. change going on. That's when you go heavy with security. You can get yep. a lot more done at that time when they're, when they're swallowing the jagged pill, it, it, it's unpopular to say, but that's when you can get a lot more security done. So we got a lot of, a lot of security uplift out of that project, uh, that, that I think a lot of us were proud to, to have gotten done at the time, but 
it was a pretty monumental effort. I've got a lot of friends in IT over there that did uh, some pretty heroic stuff over there that they'll probably never get the medal they deserve out of that. But but I think a lot of uh, heroic efforts in that time period of March 2020. Yep. And when you think about where we came from two years later, two and a half years later, you don't really hear about a lot of uh, this business completely collapsed and went bankrupt because of remote employees, right? Right. There was a lot of hard work out there by a lot of people. So when you look at just the IT and the security teams out there that that really enabled businesses to pivot that quickly from everybody's in an office to everybody's working from home and all the work got done, all the jobs got done, all the security got done. It's like, that's pretty impressive for how little we hear about any problems that went on, right? Absolutely. I think it's kind of like Y2K. We all thought the (laughs) world was going to end and all of a sudden it didn't. Yeah. And I think when we look back two and a half years, we certainly had a bit of that where it was like, oh, no, what are we going to do? Oh, yeah. Right? This will be the end of the world. How can we do this? And a lot of organizations really stepped up and got it done. I think the problem is, and, and Microsoft and Harvard did some work from home uh, um, studies and case studies and stuff. I think the problem is we had from a, a leadership standpoint, and I was one of those that maybe fell into that trap a little bit as a leader, is we didn't know when to step off the gas, right? Right. I think the businesses saw, hey, Look at these IT guys. They're working 10, 12 hours a day, six days a week. Why stop? <laughs> if that's the kind of productivity we're getting, let's just keep doing that. Yeah. At one point, I was in a leadership meeting. Uh, I, I won't say which with the organization, but it was it was one of those, you know, hey, everybody on this team is working 50, 60 hours a week. Good job. Let's keep going. And it was like, jeez. <laughs> it's really hard as a leader to communicate that downstream to people that are going, hey, man, uh, you know, I literally had folks that, that, that I was working with, and maybe not directly for me, but that reported to other VPs at the time that said, hey, you know, I've asked the organization if you know what our benefits were for, I need some counseling, I need some therapy, you yeah. know. I'm not used to getting out and seeing the therapy. I was actually holding barbecues every couple of weeks, bi-monthly at my house. Oh, cool. Just to get people out, yeah. right? To, just to get some human contact, Yeah. right? There were people that I realized, you know, we, we used to go to lunch all the time, then all of a sudden, I see them on teams five times a day, but we haven't seen each other right. in months. Yeah. Right. So I think that that taught a lot of us from a leadership standpoint, the, and quite frankly, I had a leader that I worked for that was very good at noticing that as well. He's a very good leader in that respect of realizing that the human element is important. You can't get that connection in teams or Agreed. zoom calls all the time. Right. Um, now I will say those zoom calls in teams and virtual conferences have been, kind of a godsend instead of getting on a plane and flying to conferences and eating really horrible food, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. and, 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 and hanging out at a hotel bar yeah. five nights a week. It's been kind of a great break to be able to go to a conference, watch some sessions, contribute to some, you know, round table sessions and then go home at night, yeah. right? Turn it off and, and go do something else. Right. So that's kind of been a nice, pleasant change that I think, you know, I'm not, you know, I went to RSA this last, uh, uh, spring and that was interesting, but it's like you kind of realized, you know, do I really like going back to all these conferences again? It's like uh, yeah. kind of a grind. Yeah, it, it burns you out really quick when you're on site, especially yeah. you know, working in a booth. Oh yeah, talking to people, going to all these sessions, hearing buzzwords for twelve hours <laughs> a day, right? So I think that's kind of been a nice change, and it's nice to see us embrace this uh, virtual conference mentality, right? Maybe it's not so good for networking. Yeah. But we can get an awful lot of education done Absolutely. Right, that way. And I think I think that's good. 
And in virtual pizzas, I mean, there's an innovation nobody saw. What's that? The vendors, uh, trying to think what, what vendors, but there were quite a few that when we made the transition, I just, just one of the most brilliant pivots I've ever seen in the history of marketing. We started having these virtual happy hours and pizza events, right? Yeah. Like you sign up for something and all of a sudden, a, literally I'd have a cold pack foam like uh, box with custom beers Oh yeah. In, in the box, like open this on this date for a virtual happy hour. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. Yeah. I don't think this ever would have happened otherwise, right? Or you sign up for a virtual pizza event and they have a Domino's or Papa John's shipped to your house cool. to eat during lunch while you go to a presentation. And I'm like, great. That's cool. I think we got good some idea. really good innovation out of oh, out of the pandemic, right? That, that I hope sticks around a little bit, right? I agree. I, Greerpoint and I did a, it was about 20, know, 18, 24 months ago. But yeah, during the pandemic, we did one of those wine learns where we shipped everyone like two bottles exactly, of wine. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Like the virtual <laughs> wine tasting. And I'm like, this is fantastic. Oh, it's a lot of fun you know, too. It's like, bring Napa Valley to me. Yeah, I don't have yep. to go to it. Why not? <laughs> Ship it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think I think there's some innovations we've had that, that need to stick around. But I think it's certainly, when we look at like what, what I do day to day now, talking sassy and technology and security, it has certainly changed the way we approach security, right? It, it's gone from, wow, how do I secure the road warrior salesperson with a VPN <laughs> to uh, everyone's a road warrior. Yep. Everybody works from anywhere now. Everybody needs that kind of security that we reserve for the executives and the yep. sales teams and the traveling folks. Right. Everybody now is doing that. So, you know, your what is it, call center representatives, GSRs are working from home now. Yeah. Right. Your your IT analyst is working from home now. Everybody's working from home. So I think that has really put forward uh, a technology like SASE that two or three years ago was was kind of nascent mm -hmm. and very niche to now all of a sudden it is the star of the show. At the because forefront. everybody needs it in some form or fashion. When we look at the data, I think 50% of CISOs are looking at a huge portion of their budget is being put forward towards SASE type technologies because it is so prevalent and necessary now, like you said, the forefront of what we're doing. It's in front of every conversation. When I go to Gartner and RSA and some of these events, Zero Trust, ZTNA, all these things are in everybody's talks, buzzwords on every slide. I joke that if you went and bought a new car today, you'd probably have zero trust as a feature on it somewhere <laughs> because they'll slap it on anything, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the reality is, is it is a bit of a market hype getting ahead yeah. of, of the reality. But 10 years ago, we weren't even having the conversation, right? When, when zero trust was coined uh, 10 years ago or so by uh, John Kindervark at, uh, at Forrester, mm -hmm. for about six years, it was very quiet. You know, it was in little... Like almost speakeasies, right? You go to some back smoky room where they talk about cybersecurity stuff and hacker, hacker uh, uh, um, communities, and people would talk zero trust. But you didn't get any mind share at the executive level or the IT level or business leadership. And nowadays, I think everybody is aware of it, and everybody uh, is at least uh, um, tacitly aware of the zero trust concept and why it's important, why we need to have it right. And I think that's encouraging. Absolutely. And then what inspired you to start your own consulting firm too as well, or your consulting practice? Uh, yeah, it, it's one of those things that I think, uh, you know, I've been in and out of entrepreneurship over the last few years. I've done VC, CISO consulting and stuff. And I think um, my view on that has always, I think, been different. You know, I always kind of give people the analogy that 
when you look at cybersecurity, it's a very difficult job to do as an internal function, right? Mm-hmm. I always tell people like, imagine if you're a doctor and you get a patient that comes to you and has any number of diagnoses. And the doctor says, here's the diagnosis, here's the treatment plan. And with cybersecurity, more often than not, the patient says, I'll tell you what, I'm not willing, I'm not ready to do that. I really don't want to follow this regimen and I don't really want to put the money toward it. I don't really want you to hire the people to do it, but just stick around and, and we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens later. Right. Right. And the reality is, is you're largely on a non-funded mandate, under-resourced mandate, overworked. Oh yeah. And then if something bad goes, happens, you're probably the first guy out of the job. Scapegoat. Right. So it is really one of those things that Security consulting, I think, is is a very good niche because it really is like that doctor-patient relationship, right? Yeah. If somebody calls you and says, I need a security consultant, they've at least identified the need, mm-hmm. right? They know they need someone. Yeah. And you're usually free to go in there and for the price, you give them the advice. Yes. Whether they implement the advice, act on the advice, fund the advice later, mm-hmm. put a project plan and PM on that, is is a different conversation. It's a follow up exercise, right? Right. But they typically don't punish you for the advice. Yeah. And I think I think one of the challenges we have in the cybersecurity industry in general is there is a lot of corporate culture that is really behind the curve as far as risk management, proper risk management culture, where you get punished for raising the risk, right? Yes. You run into a lot of the executive management suite that when the CISO and 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 to be clear, they don't often invite the CISO into the room. Yeah, He's he's at arm's length. He's a C-level, but he's not invited to the cool kids table often, right? Sure. But right. when he is, and he raises his hand, or he or she raises his hand and says, here's a risk. I'd like to raise this risk. I'd like us to discuss it. We're going to discuss you know, what it might cost to mitigate it, mm-hmm. what, what other options we may have, or whether we want to accept this risk that conversation is not encouraged. And often it is treated as, don't give me bad news, I don't want to hear it. I will tell you directly, I've worked for a CISO that has told me that. Really? That has told me, hey, I'm not ready to have this conversation. So any bad news you have, hold it until a couple of quarters until I'm ready to hear it. Jeez. Now I'm (laughs) sitting on the ticking time bomb, right? That's fair. I can't tell my boss that, We've got a problem that needs to be discussed. Something's urgent because he's not ready for that stress level. I get to deal with the stress. And I think that's one of the challenges. I think we have a lot of the organizations really look at their their CISO or director of security or any security professional and say, don't give me bad news. I don't want to hear bad news. Once you you really force those those professionals to to only give you good news, they're not advising you on risk. Right. No. If I went to my doctor and lawyer, I'm convicted of murder. Yeah. And I got my lawyer and say, don't tell me I could go to jail. <laughs> I don't want to hear bad news. Only give me good news. <laughs> you don't have a good lawyer at that point. No. Right? <laughs> and that's why I tell people, if you need a criminal defense attorney or a doctor or a security, cybersecurity professional, yeah. you need honesty. You oh, do yeah. not want those people to lie to you. You want brutal, honest truth. Now I've learned age and wisdom to soften that language oh, yeah. and not be the security sky is falling hysterics that you get with a lot of security folks. I've had to mental an awful lot of security talent that don't run in the room. The sky is falling, right? You don't, yeah. you don't get taken very seriously for long with that. Right. You I have will. to be able to say, my question is always give me the risk, give me the data, 
and, and give me an impact. Give me something rational. Don't tell me, oh my God, bad things could happen, <laughs> right? If it sounds like you're describing a, a scene from a Mission Impossible movie, yeah, it's not a serious risk, right? We, we need to be able to say a bad guy could do X. It could compromise this. The data could get out. It could be this many users or identities that are compromised. It may cost X. We have to be able to put rational numbers to it, right? It has to be a rational risk. Quantify but, it. Exactly. Yeah. But then it has to be something that we're comfortable and we have an open conversation where we can take to that to the business that owns the data mm. or the leadership like the CIO that, that owns the systems involved, the data stewards, system stewards, or system owners. And we need to be able to have that conversation, encouraged to have that, or, that conversation and I think a lot of organizations, they're just not culturally there yet, right? It's still the Agreed. punish the security guy because he he's not no. a team player yep. and he's saying a lot of bad stuff that I don't want to. He's saying that my IT systems could fail. Or he says and, my idea and, is and bad. And why is yeah. he talking bad about my systems? Yep. It's like, look, your systems could fail. That's the reality. They could fail. Yeah. Right? And, and, and we need to have that discussion. Right. You know? It's almost as bad as pulling in security at the end of a project. Be like, can you sign off on this? It's like, you didn't even let me look at the technology or look at any vulnerabilities that may be associated with that technology for this project. They just, a lot, many are just looking for that stamp. Oh yeah, CISO says, okay, it's secure. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> a bit of a stretch. I have given this uh, example at, you know, as a speaker uh, previously, but let's look at the, the uh, space shuttle mm -hmm. tragedies, right? Like Challenger, right? Yeah. We go back on that now. We have an engineer who was asked by his management asked very politely and very firmly to sign off on the O-rings yes. that, by the way, may fail at certain temperatures. Yeah. He didn't sign off on it. He said, I'm not going to sign off on this because if they operate under these temperatures, it could be a catastrophic. Mm -hmm. He was told by his management very clearly, look, you're not going along with this, and if you don't go along with this, it could hurt your career. Yeah. The reality is, is maybe they should have listened. Maybe, oh, yeah. maybe that was a risk worth taking. I mean, in retrospect, it looks like a pretty bad risk to take. Hindsight, but the reality yeah. is, is you don't pressure people for raising a risk, right? You have got to let engineers and people in risk management roles, you have got to let them take a stand and sometimes abstain from providing sign-off on something. I've told bosses of mine before and executives above me, hey, this is my opinion on this. I'm going to give my opinion, and this is this is my read on it. I encourage you to overrule that, right? Right. But don't tell me to change my opinion yeah. because it makes you uncomfortable. Because if I had to change my opinion, I'm giving you a political spin on something, right? Yeah, I hate that. I don't yeah. want to give you political advice. I need to give you security advice. Exactly. I need to be able to go to the business and say, there's a small chance bad things can happen. You tell me that you're okay with that risk. And we can have a good conversation and my feelings aren't hurt that yeah. you overruled me. That's fine. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to put pressure on every level down there for people to tell you what you want to hear. Exactly. You cannot have, you cannot afford to have a security organization of yes men. Very no. bad. Like, do that to your marketing team. <laughs> yeah. You know, we see with Enron, don't do that to your accounting team. No. <laughs> you know, there, there are, don't do that with your third party audits, right? There are, there are people that you don't want to do that to. I've worked with organizations before, for instance, where we were doing PCI audits mm -hmm. and I had auditors that were getting too close with uh, the, the, the customer getting chummy. Oh, don't worry about that. You know, we got your back on that. And I'm like, whoa, 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 yeah. whoa. we need to have a side discussion here. Yeah. Don't get chummy. This is business. 
you know, you're, you're not doing them a favor by overlooking things. No, you're because if they get breached and somebody's credit card gets lost, it costs that customer money. And the right. bank has to reissue a card. Everybody loses in and that. The, There's then, no winner in that, right? And the most important asset, their brand is hurt. Exactly. So the reality is, is you know, just like your doctor or your lawyer, telling the truth is doing them a favor. That, that, it may not be what they want yeah. to hear today, but you may be preventing something much worse later. Absolutely. And it's, it's eluding me at the moment, but what, I think it's the fourth largest accounting firm in history. The one that signed off on Enron, that scandal oh, yeah. was so Arthur, bad. I think it was Arthur Anderson. Yes, They're you. no longer a big four. Yeah. I, I worked for Deloitte. I know that story. Oh, no, so the reality is, is that is a case study in brand harm. Where yeah. is, they were a big four. They were untouchable yeah, for decades. Planet, where are they? They're gone. One bad client. Yeah. One bad client. One You're bad implicated call. in one fraud. You're done. Yeah. Nobody's doing business with you anymore. And they went out of business like, was it months or weeks? It was Well, they close. went out of business on paper weeks, but yeah, they had years yeah. of winding that down. Oh, yeah. But the reality is, is nobody was coming to do new business with them. Right, they had They're their long-term contracts in place. So, yep. but when they expired, yeah, no one's renewing. No one's renewing that. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things I think, uh, you know, Bruce Schneier, who I, uh, you know, I went to work at, at Counterpain back in the day, and then British Telecom when they bought when they acquired Counterpain. But I think Bruce Schneier was really a visionary on this, and from a security standpoint, in, in his estimation, you know, we looked at things like HIPAA and then Sarbanes Oxley and PCI, and we now we've got NYDFS and we've got. GDPR, and it's all this, let's throw people in jail for not doing cybersecurity. That is suboptimal at best. Mm. It just absolutely is. It's, it's like when you tell your kid, you know, clean your room or you don't get dinner. Does yeah. he go and make a real good effort at it or does he, <laughs> does he phone it in? Yeah. Does he do the bare minimum to get Nintendo time or whatever, right? Yeah. It's like you, you, threatening jail time doesn't get you, it gets you compliance. It doesn't get you security. It doesn't build out right? a culture to make exactly. you want this, to do this it. This is the old school saying of, right, security usually guarantees compliance. Compliance does not make you secure. Exactly. I'll give you an example of this. I had way back in the early 2000s, I had an organization, large healthcare organization, everybody would know, that uh, was doing HIPAA compliance. And we looked at the HIPAA rule and we looked at some of the language. It was like, okay, you must have antivirus installed on systems. Yeah. Okay. So our, our consulting advice was we'll install antivirus on these servers and we'll do this and it'll be updated and here's a process and it'll be security. These will be fairly resilient against antivirus, right? Well, there's a problem. The servers were very slow and non-performant. There was a very big like 10% performance hit oh, on some of those servers. This is way 10%? Back 20 years ago, yeah. right? for putting very heavy antivirus on these services. So what was the answer to that? Well, we get the lawyers in the room and talk. Hey, it says antivirus has to be installed. It does not technically say active or updated. No. <laughs> so I can get a very compliant solution with very little security. Oh my gosh. So I, I get very wary and I've managed third party risk before. When I hear yeah. a company say, oh, but I'm, I'm this certified and I'm that, that certified, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> that means very little from a security standpoint. Mm. I can look at your policies, practices, processes. I can talk to your developers and ask them about the SDLC. Mm. I can get a really good read on your security from a very quick discussion that a lot of times that compliance means nothing. Yeah. Uh, people get very good at managing compliance in, in, in drafting paperwork, right? Right. I've had organizations like, from a third-party risk standpoint, I've looked at a vendor and said, you're not compliant. I have literally, within 48 hours, received a security assessment on one page from 
random person, CISSP, ISS this company, they have the best security I've ever seen. <laughs> Do you rationally think you can get that done in 48 hours? Absolutely. They literally just hired someone to sign Absolutely. off? Absolutely. Somebody what? rubber stamps some document and it's like, okay, that's the compliance game. So this is why, that's unfortunately, ridiculous. we have things like uh, Target where you have the HVAC vendor that, 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 yep. that backdoors. We have the downstream uh, supply chain risk, right? Of the oh, yeah. solar winds, et cetera, right? And I think people are worried about third and fourth party risk now because well, of they this. have to. Yeah. And it's no that... longer good enough to say, I'm compliant. I asked my partners to be compliant. Now I need to know that my my partners aren't just throwing paperwork at me because I want to see it, right? Exactly. So. It needs to be tested and actually proven by a third party, either you know, pen tester, preferably by me. But um, yeah. you know, yeah. someone else has to, there has to be some unbiased opinion that can be shown on that situation. It's not enough to just, you know, self say, oh yeah, we are totally. Yeah. And I think when you look at, you know, from a technology standpoint, and again, not to, not to harp on the, the pandemic too heavily, but even prior to that, we had digital transformation initiatives and cloud first strategies. And the reality is, is from a cybersecurity standpoint, I think we got fairly good at doing cybersecurity in the old way of doing things. Right. Right. So if you've ever worked in say like a waterfall project model, right. It's, it's a, you know, I, I do some planning and an analysis and I design what the solution's going to look like. And then I design my test cases and I do some testing. And that is very good from a security standpoint, right? Because mm -hmm. I can I can look at what I'm, I'm talking about. Oh, let, let's do an iPhone app. Okay. I, I know what that looks like. I can start to look at the risks really early on and what it risks to an iPhone app are, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I need some authentication and I need this and I need that. And I need to secure it in a certain way and I need SSL or TLS on the back end for data, right? You can start to do that. Now, all of a sudden you go back about six or eight years ago and you say, let's agile everything. Everything's a sprint. Give me a use case for a, a, a strong password or MFA. Mm -hmm. There is no user enabling use case for security for the most part. Yeah. It's, it's, there is no Joe, Smith, uh, you know, found great pleasure in typing in a 16 character password and <laughs> added productivity to his day. <laughs> Security is usually a problem to solve and friction to reduce. Agreed. Right. So yeah. I think even when you look at the Microsoft model, they struggled for a good bit mm. trying to develop that. And typically I think what they came down to, and I came down to managing application security and risk for, 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 uh, internal development projects is okay. Here's your sprints, but I'm going to attach these tasks or chores mm -hmm. to your sprint, right? You're going to get a security scan here. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to assess your uh, security vulnerabilities or code findings, and we're going to remediate those before this sprint, right? But it's difficult. It's a bolt-on. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, when we take that to newer innovations, now it's, and we, we felt this three, four, five years ago, right? When we start talking a lot, well, let's go into Kubernetes. Let's go into the cloud. Let's go yeah. into containers. Like, oh, my God. It's like 20 years ago, I was literally doing demonstrations at ISSA chapters of, hey, guys, let me show you how fast malware can spread between virtual machines at IOPS speed on a yeah. RAID, right? Because <laughs> before it was like, if I have SQL Slammer Worm, it had to travel across the network. Mm. It usually got slowed down from networks that were saturated. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it DOS the switches so hard that the malware couldn't spread anymore. It bought you some time. Yeah. Then all of a sudden I put everything virtual on a virtual network. 
everything is moving at the speed of IOPS on a disk on very fast rate arrays, mm -hmm. right? So it's like virtual network, it's this fast. There's no line oh, yeah. transmission speed. There's no backplane on a switch to slow it down. It's all virtual, right? right? That was terrifying enough. Now we have containers with randomized 128 character GUID namespaces. I have virtual networks and networks. You know, I've got all of this abstraction of virtualization on the hardware and virtualization of the application and virtualization of the container and data on top of that, virtualization of the network. It's all this virtual space and things move very quick and it makes it very difficult from a security context when we start talking about things like threat hunting or incident response yeah. of, you know, if I have to take a security analyst that sees anomalous behavior or something that looks like a threat, I have to dig into that. If that originated from malware that somewhere got into my repo and got into a container and pushed out there, yeah. by the time I go look at that, that container may have been determined by my DevOps team to be not functionally correctly. They may have deleted it, deleted the namespace, reassigned the IP address, yeah. and brought up another one in its space. Now all my forensic evidence and all sorts of stuff has just disappeared into Oof, the ether, God. right? So, so it, I, I think we got really good at security, the old way of doing things, mm -hmm. and then we get these new models that security is constantly playing catch up. And I think that's one right. of the risks is it's the shift left. And it's like, yeah, but shift left sounds good on paper. Mm. It's very difficult to shift left when you've trained your staff and all your tools and everything are geared toward a different way of doing business. And I think that that constant innovation and that churn that I've seen, this is why we have a cybersecurity skill gap, pay gap, and all sorts of things. Because, yeah. you know, I've, I've had a CIO literally tell me, hey, we're going to go into Google GCP. Why? Oh, well, they're much better at AI and ML. All right. We don't know how to do security in GCP. Well, we'll just copy what we do in Azure. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a fundamental understanding of how any of this works. You've got Completely a radically different. different IEM, identity, IDP, roles and responsibilities are different. Yeah. Google, the way they do roles versus, say, Azure Active Directory, radically yeah. different. Ra I mean, very finite roles. You have to build your own yeah. identities in a lot of ways, your own roles, right? It's not just an admin has XYZ. In Google, it's here are the permissions, go build your own roles sometimes, mm. right? Very difficult, radically different. APIs, everything's different. And, and without a lot of additional tooling, it's just very difficult to say, let me take my data over here. Mm. And you lose a lot of context. Oh, I mean, yeah. one of the things I think people miss is from a context standpoint, if I've got a data lake and a server and containers and all the stuff in Azure, I've got a context that travels with me in that cloud, right? I've got a lot of rich data that I can that I can look at and determine who the user is, where they're going, what workload they're accessing and all that, right? Mm. The second I hop from there into Google, that's all gone. Oh yeah. Most of that now goes to I'm making an IP connection and now it's just a an make sure that this IP address is secured to that IP address, mm -hmm. right? You've lost a lot of the contextual awareness. And I think these are the challenges that we've put on IT teams and security teams now over the last few years that, that have been very difficult. But this is where we see an, a new generation of tools like virtual networking, SD-WAN, uh, next-gen firewall, SWIG and things like that, SASE, all these identity-based technologies that say, I don't want to manage security now at the network layer. You know, that has to be done. That's yeah. That doesn't ever go away, right? Oh, yeah. I did a discussion with a 
a colleague of mine of Verizon a, a few weeks ago, we did a bright talk. And this is one of the things we talked about is we, we tend to sweep aside the networking now and say it's not so important. And the reality is it, it hasn't ever been not as important, but we're elevating now the security to an identity level, which is very empowering. You still have to do your homework on, you know, you, just because you drive a new Tesla doesn't mean I don't need the road. Yeah. Exactly. Right, right. That doesn't exactly. ever go away. I don't, I don't go drive through the field yeah. now because I got a cool autonomous car. No, yeah. no, you still need the road. It still needs to have road signs and stop signs yeah. and lights and all that infrastructure functionality, right? right. Um, but but I, I, can, I can take it up to a user experience level, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that is one of the more empowering things about what we do from, say, Versa Networks or a SASE provider is, I can take you logging into your laptop now, and from the beginning to end, I can look at you as a user accessing application and accessing data, mm -hmm. right? I'm not just saying I'm logging you in and you're coming into this IP subnet range or this VLAN, and I'm managing that VLAN, and I'm managing your access to another network or another pu public cloud. I can really contextually manage you as a user from the time you log in, MFA, identify and authenticate your device even. Look at the authorization of what should you have access to Facebook? Should you have access to LinkedIn? Yep. And more importantly, should you be able to post to LinkedIn as opposed to just read to LinkedIn? Can you post yep. to Facebook during the day and not just read from Facebook, mm -hmm. right? I can have really granular level access to, to controls on the cloud of that user throughout their session, throughout their day, anywhere in the world. That's incredible. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that we are really starting to have a new generation of technology that, that really not just empowers security people to do their job better, but really empowers users to get per, their productivity done better, right? It, it really is the, uh, I joke about introducing a new acronym, you know, the SUX, the security user experience, there you go. right? <laughs> it's something that most people will say always sucks, which yeah. is security <laughs> user experience. Yeah. But, but we can put a positive spin on that. I think we can make the user experience of SASE say better for the user, empower IT with better analytics and better visibility, and also empower security people at the same time, yeah. right? It, it, it has always been this, uh, uh, what's the uh, um, seesaw mentality of yeah. for security to win, the user has to lose. Yes. I hate to say that, but it has been that. Right. I have had conversations with the business of user. Oh, the user hates to log into all these things. I don't no. care. It's <laughs> it, security. Deal with it. They don't want a password more than five characters. Exactly. Well. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, this system doesn't support SSO. Deal with yeah. it. Yeah. You know, now that's no longer acceptable. Now we, mm -hmm. now we, we put the onus on the business and really on security to say, let's design things that are secure, but also lower friction for the user. And I think, Thankfully, we do have a lot of tools in our toolkit now that enable that kind of win-win scenario. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, it's kind of, I don't care if the user doesn't like security, deal with it, yeah. right? And, and, uh, and I think we've, I saw that a lot early on in my career when I worked at Deloitte. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we had a very powerful security team, very good, yeah. but sometimes we weren't, and this is in the late 90s, everybody did this, but they weren't terribly empowering for, for the business or the yeah. users. It was the... Security said, you must do this, and if you don't, you don't get to do it, right? Exactly. If your business model or business idea didn't comply with security, you just weren't going to get it. Yeah. Uh, DOD, very much like that, but that's a different mandate, right? Oh, yeah. It's security's job one. Oh, yeah. Functionality, <laughs> how good it looks, whether a... Aftermarket thoughts. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I literally, I've had discussions where the, 
you know, I, I, a general in Iraq says, you know, I want wireless in my, I want wireless in my tent. I don't like all these wires in my, I don't care. Yeah. Like <laughs> I can't secure wireless from a terrorist who may be a half a mile away. Yeah. Deal with it. <laughs> NSA says you must have those wires. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> right. But, but, but. Is, is it really worth the risk? Exactly. That's, that's Business isn't that friendly. Isn't yeah. that. Uh, open to just mandates, right? You oh, yeah. you have to really have to sell it. And I think that's that's one of the things I think, again, going back to kind of the, the, the security entrepreneurship and businesses, I like being forced to sell security and the business value of security, right? Mm-hmm. I think as a security professional, I would rather try to sell the business competitiveness, the value add, mm-hmm. and, 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 and really the advantage, the strategic advantage of security, right? Right. I mean, Apple is doing this now. Oh, yeah. What is Apple doing? I mean, the, Apple has got some, they're not innocent in this, right? I think I, I know a lot of Apple users that Apple really loves my privacy. Apple's building their own ad network. <laughs> There's a reason why they don't want to yeah. sell your data to somebody else. Yeah. They're going to use your data, right? Oh, yeah. But maybe they're the lesser of two evils. You know, maybe, maybe they are doing the right thing and they're getting something out of it, maybe, right? Yeah. But the reality is, is they've managed to sell privacy, VPN users, you know, oh, yeah. your sponsors. Yep. I'm a huge proponent of VPNs, personal VPNs. Absolutely. Right? Fantastic for business and for it's privacy. The, it's, so, it's, not, it's not just so that you can watch the British Netflix. Yeah, yeah exactly, right? We all have to have yeah. that, right? right? <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, it, it really is one of those things that I think it used to be that security got in the way, and I think consumer awareness now to these breaches and having to get a new credit card number all the time and mm-hmm. getting another letter in the mail that my data has been compromised. It's just no longer fun. It's no longer cool. It's no longer trivial. Yeah. It's no longer rare. Oh no. It's, I, I think it just happens all the damn time. I look yeah. at my inbox. I'm like, Oh, I got another breach. Okay. Yep. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, who is it? Last pass. Okay. Oh yeah. Last yeah. pass got breached. All right. What do I got to do? Let me go reset about a bajillion passwords. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, the good <laughs> news is we've taken different approaches. Like last pass is a good example. Mm-hmm. They can have a breach and all your passwords are encrypted locally. Yeah, they don't get your, exactly. they don't get your data. Unfortunately, that's not what's on the front page though. Exactly. The, exactly. The, the, the five word or the, you know, the couple word intro is just last pass breached. Exactly. Exactly. Many, and quite frankly, yeah. this is where I'm at LinkedIn. I've probably made myself very unpopular in some circles. I've hammered security researchers. Oh yeah. Too many of these security researchers. It's like I want to get my name on something. I want to get my own black hat session. I want a book deal. Yeah. Right. It's this. Oh my God! I breached X. I was yeah. like, Wow. Well, that that seems pretty serious. Let me go look at that. I've got a master's degree in cybersecurity. I'm a certified ethical hacker. Mm. I can't go hack some stuff, but I can follow. I can follow it a bit, right? Right. So I'll go look at some of these things and it's like, okay, uh, I had existing admin access. I had local access to the device. Oh, I used a Freon canister to freeze the RAM so I could extract some bits. I'm like, once you, again, once you get to that mission impossible, I'm suspended from wires from the ceiling. Yeah. This is not something that I need my boss, the CISO or the CIO or the CEO, CEO obsessing over it. It's not a real world risk. And for the there folk, are everyday risks, somebody tailgating more, more to get pertinent. into your environment, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, somebody, somebody just, uh, you know, sends me a, a link and I click on it phishing yeah. and they got my credentials. There are way more absolutely. common risks that I need to worry about every day and not the sexy, cool thing I saw on the front page of Wall Street Journal. You know, some guy hacked whatever. Yeah. Right. And that is one of the things that I think tends to get lost in the environment is we tend to 
promote these very unrealistic, cool Mission Impossible style. Yep. You know, I saw it in the movie Risk, right? One yes. of the classic <laughs> ones is uh, uh, Hugh Jackman back in the day, right? What was it? Uh, Swordfish. Swordfish, yes. <laughs> like, we won't get too deeply in the scene, but it's the, I hacked RSA 2048 by bit by hand on a laptop. <laughs> Wild multitasking. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> let me get my head wrapped around that. It's like, I've had common, I've had discussions with with well-meaning security professionals that know I have to have AES two fifty six or five twelve. Why? <laughs> well, because it's stronger bit. Yeah. Tell me how long it takes to brute force to attack yeah. AES one twenty eight. Do you know what that looks like? A hundred thousand years. <laughs> you tell me any information you know of in the history of the world. Yeah that you need to protect for a thousand years. <laughs> I take every computer on the planet, yeah. quantum computing and get that down to a hundred years. Yeah. Tell me any, anybody's information that outside of top secret something, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you need at a hundred thousand years protection, man? <laughs> you know, it's like if you've got hardware acceleration all day long, it does that great. But we have to remember as security professionals that there is a timeline to risk, right? Right. It isn't maximum bits, whatever, blah, blah, blah. It, it is the, if somebody can manage to dump, and, and I think we're seeing this now in attacks, right, where uh, in ransomware, they're they're taking encrypted information and they're taking and saying, hey, with uh, the the uh, crypto revolution in, in quantum timeline, maybe in three to five years, it may be feasible to rent some quantum computers in Amazon or Google and, yeah. and hack some stuff that's out there. So I, I think this is great. Maybe some organizations should track this as a risk, but I had a guy, you know, I was, I was at the Versa booth at RSA. I had a guy that's working for a next generation crypto company, right? Mm -hmm. Come by all the, all the technology you guys are doing. now is dead. Mm -hmm. My, my, my quantum stuff can crack it all in hours. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but, you're a fully funded like crypto organization, right? You know, quantum and like, we've got some time to get there, right? Before right. the NSA says, we've got to worry about it. It was like, yeah. should you move there? Yeah, it should look at it. Should yeah. you move there tomorrow? We got a lot of organizations that don't have anything yeah. encrypted properly, right? That's a much bigger problem. Agreed. Moving everything from AES 128 to 256, 512 and quantum secure, that's a radically different risk level, right? Right. So I think too often in security, we tend to get really sensationalized and emotional with risk, and, and we need to dial it back and be much more practical, right? When you have a limited budget, limited time, uh, I don't need everything AES all the time. And I tell people, this is a perfect scenario for understanding cybersecurity from a rational standpoint. If you go to see your security team and say, tell me how to secure to make stuff, if I'm running the prison and you give me infinite budget and, and, and time and money and whatever, mm. everything looks like maximum security. Everything oh, looks yeah. like death row. Everybody <laughs> gets their own jail cell, yeah. their own courtyard, everything all the time, all day long. Yeah. That's pretty expensive to maintain, right? Oh, yeah. You don't want your security people making those maximum security decisions. <laughs> you really want business owners to classify their data, to determine risk levels and tell us, right? Balance it. A perfect example is, you know, I'm the prison guard. The warden and whoever, the judge can determine what level somebody's going to serve time. Mm -hmm. The warden decides what that looks like. If you're maximum security, death row, whatever it is, you tell me mm -hmm. what they are, and I can help you design that security appropriately around that person's 
risk level, right? Right. Don't ever go to your security guy and say, you secure all my stuff, because there's <laughs> two ways of doing that. Everything's public, yep. and I'll be, I'll be golfing, <laughs> or everything's fully locked down, and, and everything's fully secure, and my yep. life is easy, right? So the reality is, is th there is a bit of a balance there, I think, from a security standpoint. And the business has to be involved. The data owners have to be fully engaged. The system owners on IT have to be engaged. It is a relationship, and it is a life cycle, right? And I think we tend to lose that. Absolutely. And then what, what inspired you to join Versa? Or, and, then, and what is it? Uh, the first decision, I mean, honestly, you know, I, I think I get this from a lot of people, former, former CISO, and it's like the reality is, is, uh, you know, there was some personal stuff there. I, I, I had some, you know, personal family loss during COVID that caused me to relocate my elderly mother across the company to live with me here in Texas, mm -hmm. uh, which is great, which is yeah. fun. You know, we're getting a lot closer than we've been for a few years. Um, but that puts a lot of strain on you when you're trying to run and build a security organization. Mm -hmm. I think security right now is just, it is really, especially CISO side, it's a very unsung role. It's very yeah. difficult to recruit people. I'm not kidding when I say that I have interviewed people that weren't good enough for the job. They didn't meet what I was looking for, but they said, hey, I'm willing to get a cloud certification or study this or study that and get up to speed. Okay, I think you could probably do it. Literally offer people 10 grand more than maybe their asking price on a Friday and by Monday they had a better offer. Holy jeez. So it's just brutal. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And I right. mean, if you look at, you know, I've got, again, I got a master's in cybersecurity. You, you get some young person that has a master's in cybersecurity and they're demanding 90, 100, 120,000 right out of school, no experience. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. Thankfully, I think Microsoft and others, Versa, for instance, we have a lot of free training on SD-WAN and nice. security stuff on our website, which is great. Everybody needs to follow that model of yeah. let's train more young people to get into this. That's what we need. Yeah. Quite frankly, you can make more than a starting lawyer. Oh, yeah. In cybersecurity, period. Yeah. It's like you want to drive an Audi at 25, get into cybersecurity, yeah. right? Period. There's a lot of money to be made, and we need young, bright people in those roles. Absolutely. Of all walks of life, right? Um, so I try to do a lot of outreach on that. Um, but, but yeah, it is really one of those things that, um, again, going back to that doctor analogy, right? It's like I can either be in one organization and try to move the needle and try to budge the, the, the culture war for a long time, yeah. or, or I can take my talent to an organization that's, that's, you know, to put it in Elon Musk terms, trying to change the world, right? Absolutely. And I think SASE is one of those technologies when you start to look at zero trust, we can make a lot of good. We can do a lot of good for a lot of organizations, and we are worldwide, yeah. right? The reality is, is if a company doesn't want, if an organization isn't ready for that conversation or that cultural change, mm. fine, they don't have to do business with me. Right. But I'm, I, you know, I was on Bright Talk yesterday, giving a, a, a you know conversation with some folks. I had some people reach out to me afterwards. This is exactly what we want to do. How can you help? That's awesome. I, I'd rather have that than say, "Hey, I got a CISO role." Well, why? Well, my compliance org, my auditor, NYDFS said I have to have a CISO. I don't really want one. I don't really want to talk to you. I just want you Please. to kind of sit there and sign off on stuff. And sign and off take, on and, stuff. And take liability. And by the way, you may go to jail if it goes badly, but, yeah. <laughs> or I may fire you, but uh, I really need the role and I really value what you have to offer. It's like, you know, I just, <laughs> Jeez, yeah. in a lot of organizations, I think that role isn't really where it needs to be to be successful. Yeah. It's not something that I wouldn't go back to. I'm very passionate about it. But at the end of the day, I'm passionate about security, not a title. Yeah. And I think at Versa, it got a very passionate group of leaders that, that have networking and security background 
that are very passionate about doing it right yeah. and helping customers do it right. That's absolutely the most important thing is just finding the right people and finding people who really want to assist and help end users. It's, yeah. It's a cliche to say, but it is kind of hard to find good people these days. I, it, it, is. it is. And it's security. It's really brutally difficult to find good people. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I hate to say it, but I'm, I'm kind of old school. I know that, uh, you know, when I worked at, uh, you know, a couple of organizations back as a VP, I had a, a VP that ran SecOps and the IT teams. And they would say, Tony, we really want you to come and help interview people. I was like, all right, you know the way this goes. You've seen me do this. So don't tell me later I'm beating up on your candidates. <laughs> I mean, if I yeah. see a guy that says I am a network expert on his resume, I'm a network engineer and an expert. Yeah. Give me the OSI model. Oh, well, I haven't looked at that in forever. I don't remember. I was like, <laughs> you don't know the OSI model, seven yeah. layers. Like, just wing it. Just give me your best shot, yeah. right? And then people give them, you know, give them the Google question. I go to Google on my computer. How does that work? Yeah. I type that into the URL. What happens? Walk me down the layer. Yeah. How does that go from a, a namespace to an IP address to an ARP MAC address across the wire? I mean, just hit three or four of those layers that you remember. And it is amazing how many people who call, who call themselves cannot up, do that. Who call the themselves reality experts. Is, I'm old school. I do not believe you can troubleshoot an environment if you don't know that. I mean, yeah. I just, I don't think, it's like the old school way of when you see people network troubleshooting. Hey, you know, I get a 404 error when I try to go to this website, reboot your system. Yeah. You know, unplug and replug. The, there is a lot of layers oh, yeah. between rebooting and the network cable's bad, right? Yeah. You need to know that. Update your PC. Ab absolutely, yeah. right? You can run Windows Update. Uh, update your yeah. antivirus. Oh. <laughs> and the other side of that is, I mean, you, you typically see the IT folks that say, uh, you know, this server's having a problem. It's the security antivirus we installed on it. It's the, uh, you know, no, it's not, right? So. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's that crunch of resources has, has brought a lot of talent into the market, but it's also bringing a lot of talent that's way too green for some of this stuff. Oh, yeah. And I think I'd like to see more talent come in so that we can develop that kind of seniority and start to mentor talent and get it to where it needs to be. Um, and that's one of the things, you know, I've been an architect, I've run architect teams, and that's, that's a very challenging role. And I think we need good people at that level. Absolutely. And that's one of the hardest parts of a lot of our projects these days is, you know, we have clients where they've been trying to find someone for IT, like even just a yeah. security analyst for a year. Yep. And they've been making offers and like, I've had, like, I've had roles that were open for eight months and HR said, I'm going to take this role away because you haven't filled it. And I was like, okay, I'll go interview somebody just to refresh it. Yeah. Just, but I've, I've literally had roles where I've interviewed a dozen people easily. Oh, like yeah. all past pre-screening, all yeah. qualified. And you interview them, you get them in, you get three of them. You pick the best out of three. You try to move forward. He got a better offer. Fall back to number two. He's no longer available. Yep. Like, okay. It's astronomical. Let's, let's go get 15 more people to screen. It's, yeah. it's, it's brutal. It's a grind. And I think a lot of people, it's interesting. You know, I talk to uh, a lot of customers. And when we say, you know, single pane of glass, mm -hmm. you know, all this stuff, people are like, oh, whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a marketing term. Like, no, no, no. That, that is a survival instinct. Yeah. Right, alert fatigue is a real thing if you're working in a sock. If you're a security oh, analyst, right, it is a real thing. Tool sprawl is a real thing. Mm -hmm. When I hire a security analyst and I tell him he needs to look at Splunk and a Palo Alto interface and a Cisco interface and and this threat Intel feed, mm -hmm. and by the way, you better look at all those alerts all the time, all day <laughs> all long. Once, yeah. Good luck. <laughs> you know he's going to get a better job offer with a lot less stress in very short oh, yeah. time. 
especially so these days. if you're smart and you're in leadership, you are looking for a tool like oh, yeah. Versa that can bring exactly. that to a single pane of glass, get all of that threat and all that feed and all that alert stuff into one place so somebody can do their job better, faster, quicker without being up all night um, and, and make that more manageable for them. And I think when you look at the polling with CISOs and CIOs, everybody's looking at, okay, we've done this tool sprawl thing for a good decade. Mm. We've bought all the, this is the cool, best market leading Gartner said, Magic Quadrant yeah. Casby. I bought the Gartner Magic Quadrant best DLP tool I could find. Mm. I bought the best sword tool I could find. I got the best sim tool I could find. Great. Yeah. How many people are managing that? The same guy? You think yeah. he's good at all of that? You think he or she can do all of that at the same time? No. Well, I'm trying to get a person to manage that, but I can't find the right person right. Exactly. So now yeah. the reality is, is we're seeing this shift of, okay, I need to collapse this down, right? Maybe I don't need a separate CASB tool. Maybe I don't need a separate DLP tool. Mm -hmm. Maybe I don't need a separate antivirus tool. Maybe I can get something like a SASE that does all this security inspection yeah. in a tunnel, in a session, and provides all this feature and all of this coverage. And you know what? Maybe it's not triple A rated. Maybe it's double A at this feature and triple A at the others. Yeah. But it's good enough at everything across the board. And by the way, it's cheaper than all of that combined. Yeah. I, I think a lot of organizations are willing to entertain that now. Absolutely. Yeah. They're, they're no longer saying, hey, I need the Cadillac of firewalls. I need yeah. this name brand because all of my colleagues yep. are running that and it's cool. And they have the coolest yep. looking t-shirts at every convention. <laughs> yeah. Who cares, right? <laughs> Are they, are they doing security? Are they freeing up your budget? Can yeah. you find resources to manage that? Is it in a single pane of glass, right? Absolutely. And these are the conversations we're having and we hear from customers. Can you do this better, cheaper, and faster than my, than my, uh, than my current provider? And that's it. Yeah. So the game has changed. You know, we've got industry leaders out there. We know who the names are that have been selling the same products for the same prices for an oh, awful yeah. long time. And now we have organizations like Versa and others that are saying, we think we can do this better, faster, cheaper. Yeah. And that threatens them. Oh, so, absolutely. yeah. So it, it, it is every bit of disruptor in the field. And one of the things we're looking at, and this is something that isn't available today, but coming very, very quickly, is like SD-LAN. This is something nobody's talking about. Oh, that'd right? be like. Right now, when I have my laptop, I have my endpoint platform, my antivirus and all that installed on the laptop. Okay. So with SASE... I take some of the bigger competitors out there. I can scan that at my cloud gateway. Versa could do that too. That's a great capability. Mm -hmm. I can also scan that at the hardware level with SD-WAN plus security on Versa. That's cool. That's some capability. Yeah. I can determine, I can decide to scan that at my perimeter. I can scan that at the cloud gateway. I have some functionality. What if I can bring some of that security capability to the switch? Mm -hmm. What if I can have a secure connection from one client to another at the switch level I can do security inspection at that switch port. And one of those users, because one of them is going to do it, mm. clicks on a phishing email, goes to a malicious URL that's a day zero or isn't known, isn't identified, isn't on some blacklist somewhere. Mm. It's going to happen. Oh yeah. They pull that malware down. Wouldn't it be neat if I had an IDP, you know, IDS, ID, uh, IPS, anti-malware inspection and all this stuff running in between those users? Yeah. You know what that does to a bad guy trying to go lateral? If he's going lateral, he doesn't care that you're scanning traffic at the cloud. He yeah. doesn't care if you're scanning traffic at the perimeter. He doesn't need to go to the perimeter. 
Yeah. He's just going lateral. He's going to Hopping everything up. he can find. He's doing massive reconnaissance. What if I can do network obfuscation, zero trust network access to that switchboard and isolate that user to just the applications, everything they need in that local environment? If they're working in the data center, they're working in the corporate office, they're working in the branch office, they're working at Starbucks, they get the same restricted network everywhere yeah. they go and all that inspection. If my client's antivirus fails to update because they didn't turn on their laptop in time or they haven't turned it on in a week, they're missing Windows patches, right? Yeah. That's become a problem with remote work. Oh, yeah. I used to get calls from my IT guy because I had a fancy new MacBook that I hated, by the way. Uh -oh. <laughs> Once I had the Azure virtual desktop, I'm like, I'm just logging into this all day long. Yeah. Fast, neat. My desktop's always available from anywhere. Yep. I'd get the call, Tony, turn on your MacBook. It hasn't been updated in a month. <gasps> okay, I'll turn it on. Right, yeah. I'll update. Somebody turns on that laptop, they don't have an updated antivirus. They're live on the network before they have the virus up to date, Windows patches up to date, backup patches up to date, whatever it is. That's a real risk. Absolutely. What if all that capability is up to date at the switch level? And there you go. Yeah. Problem solved. I mean, not yeah. solved, right? There's still oh, yeah. some risk there, but that covers a lot of bases. A big part of the problem. That covers yeah. a lot of bases. If I'm updating my antivirus every five minutes or so at the switch, at the, at the, boundary at the perimeter and my SD-WAN or plus security at the cloud gateway, we can kind of pick that model, right? We have some flexibility there. That buys you an awful lot of protection. And I think that really is kind of what the next generation security looks like. And I think we're going to have quite a, quite a lead on most of our competitors yeah. in, in this space. I think that's going to be a true disruptor. I think we've seen the, I have workers working from home, SASE model, mm -hmm. replacing the VPN. Great. That's two years ago. Yeah. Now we've moved into the, oh, they're hybrid workers. I need to accommodate them where no, no matter where they work. That's okay. We're doing that now. Mm -hmm. Then the question is, how does somebody work from home or f work from anywhere rather, WFA, right? Yeah. Work from anywhere. Doesn't mean Starbucks or, or Dunkin' Donuts. It means anywhere. Yeah. The corporate office, the home office, the branch office, in your data center and get the same consistent security policy anywhere they go. And that's something that I think we're trying to provide. And very few organizations really have the scale and, quite frankly, the, the strategic reach to provide that. This is something Versa has been building toward for many years to kind of arrive at this. It's going to be game-changing. Yeah, certainly it could be. It could be. I think it will be. Again, that's why I joined on. I heard right. the vision and said, yeah, I will willingly drink this Kool-Aid. Oh, yeah. You know, I've been part of organizations like Microsoft, uh, BT Counterpain. B Counterpain was the first MSSP, I think, mm -hmm. really ever conceived at a large scale, right? How often or how, how frequent are MSSPs now? You know, they're all over the place. Yeah. You know, managed <laughs> security providers are the business model now, right? Yep. I really think that this is another one of those innovative inflection dr disruptor things where a decade from now, you'll have some very light backup security stuff on your laptop. But all of that will be done at the switch, at the perimeter, at the cloud. We'll be doing business radically different than we do today now. I mean, my, my user experience as a first employee is very good. I've got good coverage on my local, I won't say the product, but good coverage locally at the desktop. But everything else is done in the cloud. I yeah. don't have any issues. I'm not worried about a virus coming down through the cloud or, or a bad URL that I click on, right? I think that the model we've been pursuing down of I'm going to train all my employees about phishing attacks mm -hmm. and then I'm going to yell at them when they fail. And the reality is if it's written well enough, it will always fail. 
at some oh, yeah. level. That's the sad I'll give you a perfect example of this one. I had this a couple of years ago where I was representing an organization as a VC. So we had an acquisition. We sold about, you know, half of the company, a good chunk of the company to a Silicon Valley firm. We were going to transfer out about 2,000 employees, about 1,200 of those rather were going to move to the next company. Mm -hmm. A lot of that hadn't been announced. We hadn't decided who was going where yet. Yeah. We had a good idea on headcount. We were still making those decisions, right? At the individual resource management divisional level, right? Well, sure enough, we had a phishing other part of the business. We had a phishing exercise that said, click here for corporate layoffs. How many people do you think clicked on that link? I would have clicked Hundred. on that link. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like you, you just cannot train people well enough to, to not react on human emotion. Yeah. So the reality is, is we have to get better at security. You can only ask a user to do so much in a very evolving threat landscape, right? Agree. So the reality is, is it is really about making security better for the user, easier for the business, and more digestible, lowering that friction and making it more workable for everybody. And I think, you know, at the risk of saying hyperbolic, it, it really is, I think, we're, we're really on the, new, uh, on the dawn of something great that I think over the next few years, we're going to see a massive change in the way we do security. I agree. I mean, I think, well, double-edged, uh, good thing and a bad thing. There's so many security issues across every aspect of life. It's kind of coming to home where a lot of families are teaching their, you know, their wife and kids about IT security and how yeah. they need to take they need to take it seriously too. Yeah. Because guess what? They're on you know dad's corporate network and he's working for you know Fortune 500 or whatever. Yeah. That's and again, this is one of those things targets. like zero trust network access. You know, replacing the VPN. It's like I I you know I, I talked about this yesterday with some folks is. Our perception has always been with a VPN, you know, I'll, I'll get a VPN and I've really isolated myself. The reality is, is you've extended your perimeter to that VPN, yes. to that user, best case scenario, yeah. to that user, to that device. Mm. And you may be filtering some ports and everything. You don't see too many organizations saying, let me call through these 65,000 ports and determine what ports this user needs. Nobody yeah. does that. No. <laughs> Most people get a VPN and it's like, everything's open, yep. right? Yeah. Attackers love that, by the way. If they get on that asset, that's open recon, open yeah. lateral movement. That's a that's an all-you-can-eat buffet from a bad guy, from a threat actor perspective, right? Exactly. What gets compelling when, as I start to look at ZTNA, I'm not worried about that user, that device, that user's network and their devices. Mm -hmm. I'm isolating that user, that device, to just what they need from a policy standpoint, down to the application and maybe even down to the finite, granular permissions within an application from a cloud standpoint. If I've got a marketing person that spends all day on Salesforce or whatever, salesperson, yeah. I can just say they only get Salesforce. Even better, I've had to deal with this as, a, as an architect and a security person who owned, you know, I've owned maybe 90, 95% of security approval requests in a business, right? We hired some consultants to come in and do something. They're going to be working on something. They need VPN access. They're going to only access one project on one SharePoint server internally. Mm. But... They need it in 48 hours. Well, now I got to give them VPN access into a network, all this stuff. Yeah. And I got to hope that they only go to the bookmark for that SharePoint project they need, right? Right. In a SharePoint uh, a server, one page, right? Mm. Well, now I can do that with, with SASE. I work from anywhere. It's VPN yeah. I can say they only need SharePoint. They only need this URL. I could really restrict somebody and say, sure, let them in. Yeah. I'll connect them. Somebody hacks their laptop, even if their own laptop gets compromised, the bad guy can only see their identity, their laptop, and, and a virtual IP for the SharePoint server that they get. That's it. Yeah. 
he can't ping the SQL database on the, the, the next rack over. He can't see anything. He can't see Salesforce. He can't see anything else that they're not assigned. That's, that's pretty game-changing, and I think that's why we see massive adoption. I think Gartner uh, estimates that by 2025, 60% are going to move from VPN to ZPNA. I mean, that All is right. a done deal. Mm -hmm. That market is that big. And I argue, when we look at the people that adopted just VPN, in en mass cloud centric VPN, for instance, services during the pandemic. Yeah. A lot of those are starting to realize a couple years later, this doesn't fit what yeah. I want, right? I, I was forced to make a move under trying in times. The, moment. Yeah. the business demanded I need it now. And I jumped onto something that I didn't like mm. because it had to be done. And now I've been living with it. And now I'm ready to look at something else. So I think we probably have 70, 80% of the market that's willing to make a change. I agree. And what do you like to do outside the office? Uh, outside the office, uh, you know, I like cars. I like driving a little bit. Um, yeah. Coffee, you know, I, I, I'm enjoying uh, uh, Frisco. Thankfully, the 100-degree weather in the summer is, oh, yeah. <laughs> has come down a little bit. That Thankfully. was quite the change coming from L.A. is dealing with the infrequent freezes to the burning hot summers. But uh, I've gotten out and seen some soccer games now that life is back to normal a little, little bit, getting yep. out, eating some sushi again, having nice. fun. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd. You know, I'm a, I'm a technologist. I mean, I, I hate to say that I, you know, I won't say necessarily a homebody, but, yeah. you know, I like, uh, you know, new display technologies, new game graphics cards, all that stuff, virtual oh, yeah. reality. You know, if it's, if it's got a chip or bits and bytes in it, I, I, I will usually uh, – take a good look at it yeah. and start to look, can't afford all of it for sure, but, <laughs> but it is one of those things. But yeah, I tend to look at anything that's this kind of technology related. I think it's, it's a, a great field, IT and security technology to be into because it's always evolving, right? Absolutely. There's always something new. Absolutely. But I, I certainly like the area. I think, uh, you know, having come to Frisco in, in 2018, just tons of stuff to get out and do. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I love that the culture, in this area, uh, North Dallas, you know, Legacy West with oh, all the shops and yep. all the food. All the restaurants. I always, yeah. I always tell people it's like uh, when I lived in Santa Monica, it's like visiting Beverly Hills, right? It's like yeah. the Beverly Hills of Plano, Legacy yeah. West, right? So, yeah, it's got very much that same feel. But, yeah, it's nice to be able to kind of go out and get out about and stuff. But, uh, yeah, loving it here for the last few years. Oh, it's, it's one of the best moves I ever made in my life. Yeah, absolutely. Tech, moving to DFW in Texas. Where, where did you come from? Um, I was from Iowa. Oh, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. That's a big change, right? <laughs> I always tell people I came from Detroit originally. This is a massive step up, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's a, it, it's, it's a massive change. But, yeah, it's, it's uh, I remember, I think I remember reading during uh, 2020, you know, there were all these top lists. It was like, where are the best places to be stuck working from home? And, like, Frisco yep. was, like, number three or number oh, yeah. one or something. And I was like, well, yeah. It's like when everybody has a three or 4,000 square foot house, <laughs> it's like if I were in my LA 900 square foot apartment and couldn't go outside for eight months, yeah. It'd be pretty miserable. Yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely miserable. There is not enough Netflix no. <laughs> and beer that makes that fun, right, no. in, in, in a day. So it's like, yeah, it's like the fact that, uh, you know, during COVID, it's like, yeah, I can go to my media room. I can, you know, I got a pool table. I got a pool outside and a, and nice. a hot tub. It's yeah. like, there you go. That's <laughs> not a bad thing. So yeah. Yeah, I think... Uh, from a from a uh, work from home standpoint, some of us in this area, I think oh, yeah. certainly fared a lot better than a lot of people nationally. So uh, I think we were probably the envy of a lot of folks on the coasts. Oh, absolutely! I know Frisco 
every year like is always consistently rated like number one safest place to raise a family yeah. great place to live awesome yeah, i always, I always joke I mean, with people it's like you know i had a friend who came over and i said hey you know um the back door you know called me and i said hey you know back doors unlocked just go through the gate and whatever you know yeah I'll, I, I went to get a coffee i'll be back in a few minutes he goes you don't lock your back door. I said, dude, I live in Frisco. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, literally, if my house got broken into and I called the cops, they're like, you're from Detroit. I'm the top suspect. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> right? So it's like, yeah, I'm not I'm not worried about that at all. So, yeah, yeah it, it is really a great place. Very family and community-oriented. Fantastic, friendly neighbor. So, yeah, I wouldn't right. trade it for the world. It is an interesting note that I think when I came to Versa, you know, my boss, great guy, lives locally in Frisco. And I was like, uh -huh. Wow. I got hired by, I got recruited and hired by a Silicon Valley firm. And my boss is like two blocks away <laughs> in Frisco, which is the yeah. oddest coincidence. But right? yeah, it's like, we're getting a lot of people from the company that are, they're migrating from say San Jose to yep. DFW because they, they just want to change. Right. Absolutely. And I, and I think uh, that that's kind of great to see. Right. Oh, it's, it's the place to be. We'll have to hit up a restaurant sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate yeah, thanks it. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you everyone for listening. Don't forget to click like and su subscribe. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your enemies, tell anyone. Just stay safe. Y'all have a great day. Topping Talks.